Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, companies have been borrowing absolutely ad nauseum since that difficulty arose in March that we like to refer to as the pandemic. But of course, it was around for much longer than that. Companies now, though, tapping the bond markets may be at a pace that's moderating amid rising credit risk. Because why? Well, the coronavirus seems to be surging again around the world. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about fixed income, also covers high yield and, of course, Everything else from here to Europe, where we're seeing a 100-year bond today being sold by Austria. Tad Ravel is CIO for fixed income at TCW, $212 billion firm-wide under management. Tad, just summarize what you think is going on in fixed income markets these days. We have yields attaching themselves to ranges and not moving, and yet so much activity. Yes. Well, we've gone through Alice in Bondland the last couple of months, right? <laughs> we, have, we are experiencing, from the perspective of fundamentals, some of the worst fundamentals that the U.S. economy, the global economy, has ever seen. And yet we have gone over the course of two months, basically, from what might have been actually semi-rational levels in fixed income in terms of credit spreads in March, where spreads were out in IG, in investment grade, out to 350 basis points over treasuries to where we are today, wherein we have almost completely repriced where we were back in January of this year. The fundamentals obviously don't look even remotely like where we were in January when we were experiencing 3.5% unemployment and the idea that we would have a, a global economic depression were, would, would have been viewed as insane type of, type of comments. So where are we? I think where we are basically is we are in a market that is utterly supported by the central banks, most particularly by the Fed, and they're not supported by fundamentals. And um, as you alluded to, we have had a record pace of borrowing on the part of corporate America, more than $1 trillion year to date in investment grade. So what is you're supposed to take away from this? This is the deleveraging that was supposed to happen at the end of the cycle that is actually taking on the character of a releveraging. So I think it's a case of the can is getting kicked way down the road and the issues and the problems and the leverage that had built for years as we went into the late cycle, they're still with us. So, Tad, given that the fundamentals are not there to necessarily support some of these risky assets, does this end badly from your perspective? I'm not really sure that there's any other way for it to end but badly. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm a fixed income person, so I should probably not ever comment on the equity market. We never understand it. But it is rather instructive to recognize that the that those four stocks that everybody likes to talk about, the FANGs, are up anywhere from, let's say, 15% to as much as 50% year-to-date in the case of Amazon. Four stocks appear to be supporting the vast bulk of the, of the equity market. I mean, again, maybe I'm not an expert on this, but it certainly strikes me that with the S&P down about 5% with the move this morning, that you have a, you have a very narrow base, actually, to build upon. And a perspective from, from Bondland would continue this way. Somewhere, depending upon 8 to 12% of the mortgages out there, depending upon which kind of mortgage you're looking at, but home mortgages, of course, are in some state of forbearance. 
How many of these ultimately get worked through adversely, we don't know. There's complete opacity, I think, as it relates to the economic fundamentals. And if you cast your eye into the commercial mortgage world and you look at it, if you pull a typical uh, CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed deal off the shelf and then look under the hood, you'll see that about 40% of the loans are retail-oriented or lodging hotel-oriented. The idea that we're going to see a, a rebound and a retracement and a reperformance of these loans back to where we were six months ago is, I, I, I think it's just, it strains credulity to the, to the breaking point. So will there be losses? Is that what you're saying? Yes, there are going to be losses, but the, the, the policy response in a way has destroyed information. Um, you don't actually know which loans are good or bad. I mean, I'm not speaking against the policy response because I think that once the, the, the leverage got to these levels and once we got ourselves into a state of vulnerability and then the, the pandemic occurred, I'm not sure that there was any other response. But nonetheless, one of the adverse consequences from a capital markets perspective with respect to the policy response is you don't know what loans are good or bad. You don't know what businesses are going to make it through. Um, and part of that process is also piling on additional leverage um, onto the balance sheets. In fact, Bank of America, I believe, recently put out a, a research piece in which, I mean, it's their best guess, of course, but that uh, leverage ratios, uh, debt to EBITDA ratios, are probably going to be rising by at least a full turn um, in the investment-grade universe. That's very strange. At the end of the cycle is exactly when corporations are supposed to be getting their house in order, deleveraging, um, and uh, essentially uh, ad adapting themselves to new realities. So is it supposed to end badly? Uh, y yeah, because uh, <laughs> un un unless you restore economic growth back to uh, uh, some semblance of normality, um, you don't know where you are. Um, I mean, again, I mean, maybe I'm rambling a little bit. Where, where's unemployment? Is it where, where is it going to settle down? Um, is it going to settle down at the end of the pandemic at 10 percent, at 15, 20 percent, right? right? Or is it going to go back to 3 percent? I, I, I'll, I'll say no. Tad, as you look across your portfolio, give us a sense of kind of credit quality now and kind of how you think that might trend. Uh, well, there was a great opportunity. There was a greatest opportunity in many years to add credit exposure in March, and we took – I think pretty full advantage of it. That basically there was a the, the way we talked about it internally is that we're going to do credit committee meetings that last no more than 90 seconds is what we <laughs> said. If we have to if we have to discuss a credit in March for more than 90 seconds, um, if, if it takes that much analysis, we probably don't want to be involved. And so the names that we did get involved in would include things like Exxon and Intel and Procter and Gamble, some of the money center banks and Disney. And buying those issues, new, they were coming new issue. Not, not only were they coming cheap, they were coming with new issue concerns. I want to hear one of those pitches. Do we have 90 seconds left, Paul? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we might have to wait till the next time because I don't think we have fully 90 seconds. All but. right. <laughs> Fair hey, enough. Tad, Tad, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, love to get your take on the markets. Uh, you've been cautious, continue to be cautious. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income uh, at TCW. The big folks out on the West Coast, too, over $200 billion in assets under management. They know what they're doing out there. Uh, they see every deal that comes across uh, the tape. And so we always love talking to Tags. He gives us a great perspective. The on elevator it. issue pitch. Yes. <laughs> I mean, come on, 90 seconds. It's true. If you can't sell something in 90 seconds, don't try and sell it, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the real issue, there were some opportunities, as Tad was saying, they were uh, trying to be pretty aggressive there back in March when there was some real dislocation in the market and uh, they had some capital dry and put some money to work. Uh, so we'll see here. But again, uh, this is a market, as we've talked about a lot, Vani, that's really, really been supported, maybe even backstopped uh, by the U.S. Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world. And the question is, will that be enough? And what happens when that support starts to be pulled back? We'll have it. Now, plenty of stories about political interference at the Department of Justice. We have former Roger Stone prosecutor Aaron Zielinski testifying on Capitol Hill again today at noon. He's been telling lawmakers the DOJ gave favorable treatment to Roger Stone. We also had, of course, that massive clash between A.G. Barr and the former Manhattan chief federal prosecutor, which played out Friday night and over the weekend. And just earlier, we had a three-judge appellate panel deciding to deny a U.S. district judge the authority to examine whether the government's surprise motion to dismiss the Michael Flynn case was part of a corrupt effort to aid one of Trump's political allies. In other words, another win for President Donald Trump. To speak to all of these stories, let's bring in Khan Nowaday, former corruption and fraud prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. He's now partner at Venable LLP. Khan, thanks for joining. Let's begin with... The decision today, which is a win for President Trump, and it's basically the dismissal of the case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Now, the decision may be appealed, but is it going to be considered a win for President Trump? Is is this going to be the end of this? Uh, In all likelihood, it will be the end. Uh, This is a win for um, the administration. Uh, And there is a likely there is a possibility that this can go on bank. Uh, which means all the district court judges would review this decision, but that would take a majority of the judges to, to actually want to do that. So um, I think it's unlikely, um, it's possible, but to answer your question, this might very likely be it, and Flynn is done. <laughs> all right, Ken, let's go back to your home turf, the Southern District of New York. Give us your interpretation of what happened Friday night. Uh, what happened was, it's been said, unprecedented. Uh, it was uh, embarrassing for everyone involved and, and, frankly, terrible. It shouldn't have happened. Um, it, it's rare that a U.S. attorney is dismissed uh, when they've been doing a great job. And to have it be done that way is terrible for everyone involved. Um, and that that's that's my reaction to it. Uh, and, and it puts a cloud on what DOJ does uh, as, as an institution. Um, you know, it, it smacks of something very suspicious uh, and nefarious. How does the relationship now improve between the DOJ and, you know, offices such as the SDNY, the federal prosecuting offices around the country on various matters? If there's no trust between the two or if there's some sort of a, you know, suspicion hanging over any relationship, how does anything get done? Uh, It's hard for the work to get done. You're absolutely right, Bonnie. Uh, it's very hard. Um, and it doesn't seem to me that this is the end of the story necessarily between the Southern District of New York and DOJ and AG Barr and that tension, because Barr did not get what he ultimately wanted, which was someone from the outside, 
at least on an interim basis, to be in charge of the Southern District of New York. Barr lost that fight. He could very well lick his wounds and then come back again and try to uh, replace Audrey Strauss, who was Berman's and is Berman's uh, deputy and now the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. So what do so we know? will continue. Right. So, Ken, what can you tell us about Audrey Strauss? Do you ex- how independent is she? Do you expect her to continue um, the, some of the investigations that do touch upon the Trump organization and president himself? Absolutely. She will. She'll do it with independence. Um, she was Berman's right-hand person. Uh, she has a, a razor-sharp legal intellect, uh, and she cannot be corrupted. Um, and what's interesting is she was the one overseeing many of the Trump-related investigations and prosecutions at the Southern District of New York. And it wasn't Berman anyway, because Berman was conflicted. So I'd expect those investigations to uh, proceed uh, uh, at a fast clip. Now, so much of the work is done by the rank and file, right? So you obviously have the people at the top that are directing and responsible for everything, but so many rank and file workers are just beehiving every day on so many different cases. How much turnover has there been since this administration took control? And, you know, you know, roughly what would happen if the president were to be reelected, I mean, would there be more of an influx of, um, you know, administration sympathetic people to the SDNY or will it still remain the, sort of similar to the way it is now? Um, I, I think the turnover has slowed down since the, the uh, administration uh, 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 came in back in 2016, uh, early 2017. Um uh, I, I think mor- morale generally at the U.S. attorney's offices and DOJ is, is pretty low mm. um, because it's not good to have uh, the credibility of the institution affected uh, uh, in, in this way. Um, you know, it, it affects how, as a line prosecutor, you do your job. If people think that certain people get a better deal because of who they know, it, it's not good. You can't do your job. Um, you're supposed to be trusted. And the bar, the, the bench stops trusting you. The courts and the judges stop trusting you, and that's just bad. So, Ken, I mean, the, the, the key thing it would seem for the, for the president, as you suggested, would, and for Attorney General Barr, would be to get one of their people in there heading uh, the Southern District of New York. Do you think that will happen at some point? It, I don't, it's a political question. I don't, I don't know if politically Barr can do that right now. Um, because he, he uh, had his ham-handed uh, way of trying to do it, uh, and it was found out that he lied about Berman uh, uh, resigning. It turns out, at least as it's been reported, that he lied to the District of New Jersey U.S. attorney as well about that. Um, right. But procedurally, it is, I think it is possible. Um, I think it's possible he can do, what, do it in the manner that Berman actually was appointed as U.S. attorney originally. Berman... Uh, was appointed by Barr on an interim basis by yep. statute. Uh, Barr can do that again. Okay. Uh, it, it's never been done before. Uh, it, and it, it, the legality of doing a successive interim appointment is up in the air. But my question is, if he did do it, who'd have standing to challenge it anyway? 
Yeah, exactly. Hey, Ken, thanks so much uh, for joining us today, giving us uh, your uh, thoughts on a lot of these legal issues uh, uh, happening, crossing the tape. Ken, nowadays, partnered Venable LLP. He was formerly nine years at the Southern District of New York, giving us his thoughts there. Well, one of the negative byproducts of the pandemic has been higher food costs. We had some, some supply chain issues. We had uh, certain meat and poultry processing plants uh, shutting down due to the virus. But the concern is that maybe food prices will remain at these higher levels, even as some of these issues get resolved. To discuss this, we welcome Stu Leonard uh, Jr. He's a chief executive officer of Stu Leonard's. He's on the phone from Danbury, Connecticut. Stu, thanks so much for joining us here. We saw that initial spike up in food prices at the supermarket level. Should we expect those prices to come down as supply chain issues get resolved? Well, first of all, Good to be with you this morning, Paul. Paul and Bonnie, how are you? Um, you know what? Uh, this has been, I've been in the business 50 years. You know, we have a family business here in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And I have never seen such a volatile food market as we've seen since the pandemic hit. Um, you've seen all sorts of our, our uh, you know, big processing plants uh, across the country closed down. And you know, whenever there is a, a shortage of supply, prices always go up. What we're noticing at Stu Leonard's, and we buy direct right from the local farms and, 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 you know, local meat companies and so forth. What we have seen, and I just talked to all our buyers this morning with meat, fish, produce, cheese, fish. We're starting to see the prices coming down. And, and I'm reading the newspaper, and, and I'm saying there, our prices aren't going up at Stu Leonard's. You know, we've even lowered the price on ground beef, uh, you know, from Memorial Day, a dollar a pound. Um, and it might even decrease a little bit more in the future as, as the processing plants in the Midwest stabilize a little bit. What's demand been like, Stu? Because people haven't been able to just, you know, pop out to the store to buy something last minute uh, in many cases. And also there have been so many reports about, you know, infections at plants. Has it put people off things like ground beef? You know, it, it has a, you know, it, it's it's a rock star item at Stu Leonard's. You know, you grind it fresh and, and pe- what could be better than a hamburger? I mean, it's part of America, just about, you know, put a little cheese on it too and you're all set. Um, but, you know, we, we have seen that, that um, a lot of our suppliers will be going through normal, normal variations. It happened last year. It's happened every year I've been in business. You know, if the lobsters are shedding up off the coast of Maine and they're not out there catching lobsters, the lobster price will be a little high at this time of the year. But it comes down again. So there's a market-driven roller coaster that most people are used to every year with eggs, butter, all the fresh commodities. And, you know, we're going to ride those. I don't know. Maybe people are picking items that might be on a natural high right now, uh, but you know, it's Stu Leonard's. I don't see our prices going up. I actually see them going down a little bit in, in the month of July. So, Stu, one of the things you know I'm fascinated about as we as we take a look at some of the uh, the issues surrounding this pandemic is how consumer behavior may change uh, going forward as a result of this <clears throat> pandemic. Uh, what is your sense for people? You know, kind of eating out versus you know, shopping at supermarkets and, and staying home and making maybe, you know, more elaborate and better meals. Do you have a sense that things are going to change from your perspective? 
Hey, that's a great question because you know what? We've found now people are cooking at home. They're baking at home. We started carrying items that we never used to carry. You know, we're, we're mainly fresh foods, but we've added yeast to the menu and there are lots of flour we've been selling. Um, people are baking banana bread, you know, and things they never used to do in their cooking at home and looking for new recipes. We've seen the fish, uh, 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 department grow in size because people are starting to experiment with different kinds of foods. So I think post uh, a pandemic, you're going to see a lot more people that are interested in food. And I will say also wine, you know, our wine sales have gone way up and, <laughs> and even, even cocktails, you know, mm. I, I, we can't keep tequila in the store just about, <laughs> um, you know, these margarita mixes are flying off the shelves and the little, uh, you know, cocktails in a bottle now are really popular. And we just put an item in now, which is like, you know, those little um, those little pop uh, frozen sticks that you used to eat as a kid? Yep. yep. Um, you know, made your lips all blue. <laughs> <laughs> now they have them, um, but there's alcohol in them. Uh, now we're talking. <laughs> this is not an endorsement, by the way, on our part, Paul. <laughs> no, I, I know that. They're, they're very low alcohol. It's like a little more than beer just about. But um, uh, we're starting to see all sorts of items. We've put a five-pound bag of French fries in the store. You never would have thought that sells, but they're, they're gobbling them up. Um, more also toward immunity-fighting foods right now because – Look, with the cold and the flu, everybody says, eat more citrus. So we've noticed our lemon sales have gone up sevenfold. Uh, same with limes, uh, oranges, you know, grapefruit. All of citrus is really popular. Orange juice right now. So you're seeing a, a, a real change in, in the way people are um, eating and shopping. And the big question we have at Stu Leonard's is, where's this going to settle out? Right. Yeah, exactly. Stu, you know, not to make light of it all, but thank you so much for jumping on and talking to us. A very difficult time for you guys in terms of trying to figure out what to price, you know, and, and where to change prices, how often to change prices and so on. A headline just crossing the Bloomberg, though, might actually be a good news for local grocery stores. We'll see about that in a moment. Our thanks to Stu Leonard Jr., CEO of Stu Leonard's. Now, latent questions for corporate America have come up very strongly in recent weeks on race in the United States, but it's not a new conversation for many, for most, I would suggest. One group of people that have been looking at this is a group of people that have already come up with something called the Impact Shares NAACP Minority Empowerment ETF. It's a fund designed to provide exposures to companies with strong racial and ethnic diversity policies in place. Let's welcome now two of the men who created and are helping to market this. Ethan Powell, CEO of Impact Shares, and Marvin Owens Jr. is Senior Director of Economic Development at the NAACP. Welcome gentlemen, and it is great to have you. The ticker for the ETF is NACP for those who'd like to look it up. My question to you is right now it's a small fund, but Impact Shares is a non profit ETF issuer. How do you plan, let's go to you first, Ethan, on marketing this? I would imagine that in recent weeks it, it may have become easier. No, you're right. Um, there are 600 ESG funds in the United States, and this is the only one that's specifically addressing issues of. Uh, corporate America and how they interact with communities of color. Um, so I think, you know, to your point, it's getting a lot of attention. The volume on the secondary market has increased and we have seen some inflows. 
Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we need to appreciate is that traditional asset managers really have a credibility and a communication problem as it relates to ESG. Um, and that's why we partner with leading social advocacy groups to craft issue-specific ESG solutions. And we ask, what does a good corporate citizen look like through the lens of the NAACP, specifically as it relates to people of color in the United States? And we work with them and the corporate America to improve their business practices relative to these issues. Marvin, I, w- I want to bring you in here. I mean, you know, we all saw the tremendous uh, events, uh, the civil unrest as a result of the death of George Floyd, to me at least, to a, just as an individual, it feels different this time. The conversation feels different than this time than in past uh, episodes. The folks at the NAACP, do they feel the same way? Yeah, we do. Um, though we've been at this for 111 years, this does feel like a watershed moment in which um, corporations and individuals are thinking about how to get engaged with the fight against racial uh, injustice and against discrimination. And I think this uh, this fund has given us an opportunity to engage corporate America in this conversation in a different way. For probably 25 years or more, the NAACP has been doing co- corporate scorecards, uh, and this scorecard model is essentially what is being used in this in this uh, ETF, uh, and that's why we think it's a it's a wonderful tool for engagement. Um, we need everyone involved, and this is a way to get everybody involved. Marvin, there are 175 holdings in the ETF, and I'm curious about companies such as Amazon. It has the highest net percentage. Microsoft and Apple, right behind Amazon, are they doing the best on diversity? No, they're not doing the best on diversity. I think what it, what that indicates is simply the fact that they've they've really committed the resources to trying to develop and trying to measure what they're doing, um, and I think that quite frankly is is uh, a result of of their size again and again. And I think they're they're focused on wanting to make sure sure that they're creating uh, a diverse and equitable uh, uh, corporate co- corporate culture, uh, and and I think that's a great thing to be. To celebrate, but I also think that it's important to recognize that that those these organizations have put the money and resources toward this effort. There are other organizations, other corporations, um, that are also doing great work. Um, and so, yeah, while they are represented in our fund in a significant way, um, they are not the the best in class, I would say. Mm. So, Ethan, as you look but at some are, of the companies, they are the best in class within their individual sector, right? So, we have every sector of the economy represented, and we pick the leaders within each sector. So, while the tech sector certainly has room to grow, um, you know, those those names in particular are taking a leadership position. Yeah. So, Ethan, I want to get a sense from you, kind of, what are some of the characteristics, or what are of, of companies that are doing a good job? Right? Were they just early? Were they? Do they have commitment from the board? What are some of the characteristics of companies that score well on your screen? Right. So we look for um, supplier diversity programs, fair hiring pay and promotion practices, community engagement programs, digital divide programs. And as Marvin said, it does have a larger cap skew because those are the companies that have the resources not only to commit to the programs, but to prioritize uh, reporting uh, to the public as well. Now, Yesterday, we saw BlackRock come out and say it plans to increase its black workforce by 30% by 2024. You have other companies making similar pledges. Marvin, is 30% of the workforce enough? And by 2024 even, not even immediately? Uh, I, I, 
I don't think it's enough. Uh, I do think that it's a wonderful effort. I think it's the right time to do it. But the, but you have to raise the question about why is it happening in this moment? Um, if this was a priority, um, then it should have been a part of the corporate co- corporate culture co- a corporate culture prior to this moment. And that's why I think it's important to engage these corporations and these in- institutions in these kinds of conversations. It's it's great that they're making the commitment, and it's great that they're sort of implementing these kinds of changes. It does suggest to us that there's a lot more work to be done um, because in this moment there was a decision to do it, and it was a decision to do it based on the current events that were happening. What was happening prior to this moment is important to also recognize. Uh, and so that's why it's important that BlackRock is, is making the commitment publicly, um, and we're excited to hear that they're doing it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for this uh, important conversation. Ethan Powell, CEO, Impact Shares, based in Dallas, Texas, and Marvin Owens, Jr., Senior Director of Economic Development for the NAACP, uh, based in Washington, uh, Washington, D.C., talking about the ETF. NACP is the symbol uh, focusing on companies uh, that score well in the ESG realm, paying particular focus uh, to diversity and certainly a topic uh, on, on the front burner these days. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.